Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casella. With me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy, uh, officially summer, especially if you're here like I am for the first time in a long time in New York City. Uh, Happy Fourth of July week. Happy uh, other things. (laughs) Dan is once again a resident of New York. Yes, uh, well... Like off and on, but yeah, I spent my first couple of days back in New York for the first time since uh, uh, since the college basketball season wasn't canceled. <laughs> Quite some um, time. Yeah, my last day in New York City. I mean, I've been here for a couple of days now. But, uh, the last time before this past like week, I was in New York was uh, the day that the ACC tournament and whatnot got canceled. So the day after the Syracuse UNC game. So it's been a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, any big takeaways from your uh, from your your living elsewhere for several months on end? Um, it it feels both like a long, long part of my life, and also like it was like a total of like a couple of weeks. It's this time. I have such an interesting relationship with time right now. Um, just very strange. So uh, next episode, you'll be making stick figures out of uh, out of Lone Star cans and all kinds <laughs> of other. Sir- Certainly possible. Can't rule anything out. Next episode, I will once again not be in New York City, though. So. Even better. I'll be back in New Jersey. Uh, uh, so while there's no like hard news necessarily this week, I actually feel like after several weeks of like stuff going on, there was really like not much this past week. However, I did want to talk about a couple interesting things. Um, I know on Sports Illustrated, Pat Forty, a uh, longtime uh, news magician at Nemesis <laughs> slash just... One, one, one of many, many people who have who have said that Syracuse doesn't belong in, in NCAA tournaments that we proceed to advance several rounds in. Um, he did mention this thing on Monday where he decided that college football, in case of you know COVID-related emergency, should be turned into just 10, 12-team conferences. You knock 10 teams off of FBS level um, and do everything by geography. This kind of gets rid of... I mean, I don't mind exercises like this because they do like usually any like it means the last 10 years, any realignment exercise usually is very based on, okay, history, rivalries, do all this stuff. Uh, I feel like the geography ones are at least fun because you get to deal with some amalgamations of teams and and strengths of schedules and things like that that you otherwise wouldn't have. Um, So he put us in the Yankee conference uh, and that is with uh, Army, Boston College, Buffalo, UConn, Maryland, UMass, Navy, Penn State, Rutgers, Pitt, and Temple. Um, again, full caveat, not this is never happening. Um, but Dan, how do you feel about this league uh, that we, we, we've now been hypothetically placed in? This would be like the 1966 Yankees conference. Um, I think if it was like a one-year like emergency stopgap because of COVID, like you just kind of deal with it and like you could actually even – spin it into like, hey, this is a year that we actually really need to rack up some wins. So throwing us in a league with UConn and Buffalo and UMass, I don't know, Buffalo's not bad. 
um, UMass and uh, Rutgers uh, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Um, as far as like a long-term thing, which I know is not the proposal here, this would be really, really trash because it's just like Penn State's the only team with a lot of juice here at all. Um, and it'd be completely unsustainable. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if, if they actually wanted to go to like a more, um, you know, reasonable way to execute the college football season in terms of like limiting travel, um, you know, there are worse ideas for sure. Um, but also just like, I think traveling at all is like a way bigger risk than like the amount that you travel. Like once you're making the step of like moving your, uh, you know, 60 something, 70 something person roster to another place to play a football game, whether you're doing it to Buffalo, New York, or you're doing it to Clemson, South Carolina, I think you're like, that's the biggest possible opening for issues. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's not a terrible idea, but, um, it also reminds you why we're in the ACC and uh, why the, the Big East isn't a thing really anymore and why uh, a Northeastern Conference isn't really a uh, particular uh, thing that could happen because, like, this conference would be not uh, attractive to anyone. This is really a, a barren wasteland in terms of interesting matchups, in terms of really, like, schools that other people besides the, like, 12 fan bases identified here would want to watch. Uh, obviously, like you said, pretty top heavy with Penn State. I think there's actually an interesting like middle of this league, but like people are fine with a conference when like Temple, Rutgers, Syracuse, Pitt, Navy, Maryland is like, and Boston College is like you're like five through you know ten or eleven. And the, the the problem here is that that's your like two through six or seven <laughs> in the league. So you you pretty much you, you get Penn State the undefeated record every year, uh, and, and then from there you kind of figure out, you know, who can, who, who, well, I guess, yeah, figure out who can go 10 and one or, or nine and two from there. Uh, yeah. You'd be handing this lead to Penn state, like probably not like a, a Clemson in the ACC run, like we have now, but like, you know, they have their down years, but most years they'd be able to overcome this pretty easily. Um, that being said, like that, that second team popping up um, is where like an opportunity would be presented to us in like a year where we really need to have a nice year because um I mean, there's a lot of just a lot of wins on the table here, obviously. Um, but again, like like you said, they're, they're, this is like a, a league made out of uh, like seventh best teams in a conference uh, at best. So not not great. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's 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 problematic for football, but I actually think it might be like more of an issue for basketball just because of how many like. Like, realistically, you look at this league like. The none of them would be are, really rough. Yeah, yeah, like none of them are particularly good at football, save Penn State, and then even, and then I feel like there's more schools that prioritize basketball. I mean, Maryland, UConn, Syracuse in particular, but then like beyond that, there's like only sort of good programs like Temple, like Pitt, um, Buffalo, know, honestly, <laughs> it's, Buffalo, it's lately. A sort of good program. Yeah, and then everybody else though, like. I mean, be, like Army and Navy, you know, fail to have any ability to really compete. And they, they, they just, that's not something they can do, um, compete on the basketball front in any way. Penn State's only recently become like mildly relevant. Rutgers was relevant for one season and might be this coming season. Pitt, you know, has had their, kind of taken their lumps over the last decade now. Um, I, I, I yeah, like we've said before, and I said in the article too, like there's not necessarily like any staying power here. Um, with this group, but also, and I didn't even get into this in the article, like, okay, so like Forty said, okay, you look at, you, you add another 10 conferences or whatever to get to the full complement of like basketball schools. Okay, so like 
what do you make that Big East look like? And, and, and how do you justify that Big East potentially being like a lesser conference than this conference? <laughs> if, if you throw in like most of the actual members of the Big East um, there, at least the ones that are like, you know, geographically near one another. I really enjoy this situation because, you know, the first time that we had like a middling game against Providence on a Tuesday night, there'd be a whole session of our fan base be like, yeah, we should just do this all the time. <laughs> we should just move back to the Big East like UConn did. It's like, why? Because we just played a 68 to 57 game uh, at Seton Hall on a Thursday. Yeah, that's why. That's the stuff. <laughs> that's what we want. Yeah, like I, that's always my, my favorite co- uh, conversations with folks of like, and they say that the Big East is really like, you know, the Big East is better than, they say the Big East is better than the ACC. Why would I want to play Wake Forest and Georgia Tech instead of Georgetown and Illinois? Like, well, that's not the comparison. <laughs> like, that, 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 that is not the comparison. The comparison there is, do you want to play Georgetown and Villanova or do you want to play like Virginia and Duke? And there, I think there's actually like a pretty fair fight both in terms of, I think, in terms of strength of uh, programs, I think the Duke-Virginia contingent wins. Um, in terms of how much Syracuse fans care, I think it's actually reasonably even, if, if not the ACC just being slightly behind. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, you know, when you actually compare, like, programs to where they'd fall league to league, like, you're really comparing Providence and DePaul to, to Wake Forest and Georgia Tech. So yeah, I, I think that checks out. Yeah, that makes sense. Um yeah, ultimately, like, again, like, I don't think this is the craziest idea, except that, like, again, I don't know that the actual benefits are as uh, significant as, as they seem. Um, the, the the real benefit would be, like, just not playing a season, which obviously neither of us want, even though that's probably the, like, most safe thing to do. Uh, and Anna, who knows, like, where we're going to be, because, like, you know, there was some serious optimism for a while there, and then given everything that's happened with COVID, it's it's hard to be optimistic about a season for anything at this point, even the ones that are like pushing forward and like seem, seem like they're, uh, they're ready to move forward like the MLB and the NBA. So uh, knock on wood, hopefully, you know, this, we don't have to deal with this. We also don't need to like worry about month, like four of this being bad and all the football hotbeds and, and it's just being a, a total wash. But, uh, and at the same time, obviously you throw in all the, just the general concerns of making college athletes play through this given the, whole issue with college athletes uh being unpaid labor and uh yeah fun times yeah obviously not getting into the 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 full issue here this is not a a political podcast however um or a news podcast for that matter uh but yeah it it is worth noting that um as covid outbreaks kind of not not just resurge but actually surpass the old ones um because we didn't really we never really beat it the first time around. We, we, we only flattened the curve in, in, in a very like one to two week stretch and then proceeded to uh, jump right back up. I, I think right now there, there's a real concern that, that, that sports can't happen. I think that football, I think you can find a way to maybe split a conference season into different semesters. Basketball, I don't know how you do it, um, given the amount, of, uh, the amount of teams, the amount of travel required. Um, I, I, I think... I think you have to probably hear soon from from college football administrators who seem like they're waiting until August for some reason um, in the NFL um, in particular uh, to kind of come forward with like what next steps are here. And like you said, too, like other leagues are pushing forward. I don't really know if things can necessarily continue, especially when so many leagues are kind of basing things on 
um, you know, restarting in Florida, which is not really like easy or maybe even like prudent to do at the moment. Yeah. I mean, football, you couldn't even do a bubble like college football or the NFL. It's just not plausible with the amount of players you have. Um, the NBA is like the one where you feel like you could pull this off because it's like 15 players per team ish. Um, you know, only a handful of coaches and support staff football. It's like, you know, you have in college, you have a hundred plus players, including walk-ons plus, you know, your staff is plus support, including a support staff. It's like probably 20 or 30 people for a lot of these teams. So it's just completely implausible to do a bubble type scenario. You couldn't do bubbles with college anyway. Like that's just like, you're giving up the whole game. If you do that, um, NFL still way too big. Um, and there's no games being played. So you can't even limit teams really, unless you did like, I maybe you could do like a bubble for each division, but then it, you know, it still gets really messy once you need to do other games. So, um, yeah, football, it's like, I, I, I kind of get why neither the NFL or, or college, which is obviously not like super centralized. So I don't even know where this message would come from. Um, I think they just don't really want to admit uh, that there's a possibility of things not being able to progress until they get to that point. Um, I like to hope that they're trying to figure out some contingencies, but uh, it also might just be like, uh, you know, we're going to pretend like this isn't as bad as it is and, and just hope for the best, Um, which hasn't really gotten us, uh, you know, super far in, in just general life. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, not having football won't be like the end of the world for, for us generally, obviously there are millions and billions of dollars on the line for, those industries but it's it's tough to like realistically see it unless you know we have some really good positive news and that's you know probably month and a half Ugh, but uh yeah i mean hopefully they figure it out because i would love to see football this fall uh so it's tough yeah i i think unfortunately like just from a just not even sports standpoint i think just from a like you know just people standpoint i, I think we need to see some more some more plans in place and, and, and some more kind of next steps um, before we even get to the sports front at this point. But uh, rather than dwell on that, not like I don't care about it, I very much do. I know you do too. Uh, I think we talked rivalries for a little bit. You know, that conference conversation kind of got the ball rolling on, on rivalries a little bit, um, but it is rivalry week, uh, weeks really. Uh, this stretches into July 10th um, for SB Nation sites. Uh, today, we talked about uh, ways to revitalize Syracuse and Georgetown. Um, the obvious ones, uh, if Syracuse and Georgetown were just better, um, people would care more. We would care more. I think fans of both teams would care more. Um, but beyond that, you know, so, some of the more notable um, options include just playing a home-and-home home every year, which logistically maybe not the easiest but doable, um, and also moving the game to, uh, to January or February uh, was one I came up with. Um, Dan, do you have any others that you think would elevate this game to kind of what you and I remember from when we were there versus kind of what it's turned into since uh, Syracuse left the Big East? Um, it's hard. It's hard not being in the same conference, honestly. Like, there are so few um, rivalries that are not in conference uh, that live up, I guess, like Cincinnati Xavier and Kentucky Louisville. But um, also not having the in-state thing uh, or in-city for Cincinnati Xavier um, really hurts it there. Uh, so I think you'd have to have it where like guarantee it's on the schedule every year. Um, and then there needs to be some, some, I don't know, move it later in the schedule somehow. Um, that's, that's one of the things I always am surprised that they don't do with, uh, with, uh, Louisville, Kentucky is it's always in that like weird third week in December. And like, it's not up against that much since like the early bowls aren't, you know, a huge deal, but it's just, it's such a weird time until like the afternoon. So I think trying to avoid that and making it like, Hey, we're going to do Syracuse Georgetown in February every year. 
Um, it'll just be a weird, like, middle of the conference slate thing. Um, but it actually feels like the part of college basketball where, like, people are actually starting to pay attention, um, even if it doesn't have, like, the conference uh, thing. But I think you want to make it feel as much like a conference game as you can. And that involves, like, just it's a cemented thing on the schedule. Obviously, like, there are contracts and whatnot, but you just know this is being renewed every 10 years or whatever. And then push it into a part of the schedule where people actually care. Um, I think those would be the best bets. Yeah, I think really, you know, obviously January, February is the meat of um, the college basketball schedule and you're going to be up against some big matchups, things like that. But from a broadcast standpoint, like, you know, it's not like FS1 has this like glut of really good college basketball inventory. Um, ESPN obviously does. But, you know, if the game's good, if both teams are good, um, you know, broadcast partners kind of find a way to, to highlight it. I know I said in there too, like having some sort of like, documentary even if it's like a streaming documentary that just kind of talks about you know the history of Syracuse and Georgetown um and specifically in like instead of the way the requiem for Big East was where you had the story of the conference and and those two schools kind of sitting like front and center I I think in this case like you just had the story of the two schools and the conference sitting in the background um of that I, I think could be interesting and and a lot of time has obviously passed since Requiem for, Big East, for the Big East came out. So I, I'd be curious to see, you know, something like that, uh, that just kind of reeducates fans in, in the region and, and incoming fans. I mean, say we take it for granted. And I was talking to some people, fans about this today. Like, you know, we take it for granted. You and I were on campus for, you know, when we were in the Big East and when we faced Georgetown every year and when we faced UConn every year and what all that meant, uh, you know, in the years since, like, Kids come in now, they, they they don't really, I mean, unless they were like huge sports fans growing up or unless they were, you know, diehards or their parents went or whatever, like they don't necessarily have the same affinity for the Big East, for the schools that were in the Big East, uh, for our rivals that were in the Big East. And for them, like a game against Georgetown, uh, for all we know, within 10 years could feel like a game against like, you know, the Bonnies or or somebody else. If, if, if SU and Georgetown uh, together, I guess, don't really – create some sort of, uh, you know, collective um, marketing effort to, to get people to still care, not just about the, the history of it and, and the past, but also like the present and the future of the rivalry. And, and the biggest thing overall, I think, is probably more than anything else, is just both teams need to be better. Um, obviously, you know, we've had our moments, but like having a more consistent team for the regular season. And then Georgetown has just been so irrelevant since the Big East, quote unquote, formed. Um, uh, we bring it up all the time. Like, it's funny considering like UConn acting like this is their, you know, golden ticket. And it, uh, you know, maybe it will be better for them than the AAC was for a lot of reasons, but it's certainly not like a guarantee that you're going to, uh, you know, just reemerge in your, um, you know, heyday. Georgetown's been almost wholly irrelevant uh, since joining the, the new big East. Um, and they've tried to, you know, hire a legendary player as coach, um, which apparently like every, I mean, St. John's did the same thing. It didn't work out for them. It's obviously not a foolproof strategy. Um, they've just done a bunch of stuff and it just hasn't really worked. So like if both programs are really good, even if you didn't have like the annual game or the like later in the date or whatever, like if there was a, uh, an early December Georgetown Syracuse game and both teams are like undefeated and like had a couple big wins under their belt, there would definitely be some juice for it. Um, so, you know, that, that also needs to, you know, obviously both sides, I think need to pick it up in that regard. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I guess, you know, kind of doing a little bit more on this, uh, the rivalry point. 
Um, you know, I've talked to different fan bases about this. I know we talk internally with SB Nation folks about this too. Like Syracuse is unique in the fact that we don't have, because of our lack of conference affiliation for so long, um, our independence for years in basketball and football and lacrosse, like they're, they're just, you, you end up with this weird thing where most of our rivals are, are recent or not really ever codified. Um, there's also just the fact that we have different rivals across different sports. Um, and, and since we're not a state school, we don't necessarily have that like proximity rival that a lot of others have. Um, I know for me, like one of the things we're going to be talking about this week on the blog is like exactly who are our rivals. Um, I know it's a conversation that comes up, but looking at specific examples and why and why not looking at, you know, forced rivals, maybe rivals that haven't been forced upon us, but could become rivals. Um, Dan, looking like across sports, who do you think would be like the three rivals um, and not like going sport by sport, but, but like actively like who, who are the three schools that no matter the sport, you think we should be caring most about beating on an annual basis? Um, I think, to, I mean, effectively you have to answer this as like ACC schools. Like obviously we play UConn a lot. We play Georgetown a lot, but um, there's no guarantee that's going to last forever unless we like really make a point of it lasting forever, um, which it seems like, you know, making an effort, but not like, this is going to be like the type of thing I was saying, like the annual game that you know is never going anywhere. Um, so in that, considering that, I think Duke's just an obvious one because that's the the ACC game that really has like the pull right now, even when we haven't been great. Like there's a definite buzz over Syracuse and Duke, especially because we've been pretty competitive with them, all things considered. Um, Louisville, I just think is like our most underrated game across sports. Like we've been conference mates with them for a while. Um, we've had like, obviously they had our number in basketball for a bit, but it's balanced out a lot more. Um, we've had both sides have had like huge wins over the other in football, um, us against Teddy Bridgewater, them with the Lamar Jackson game at the dome that has that one replay play every single time he's mentioned, uh, ever. Um, so it, uh, you know, I think there's just a, a really solid baseline of like relative mutual respect, I think, but also, um, we've just had like moments where both teams have been good in both sports, which is not always the case for our, for our teams, especially in football. Uh, and then um, I think Virginia, I know it's like a pet thing for the blog, but like we've had some big time basketball games with them. Um, they're kind of a rising star. We're kind of in the same place football wise, or we're trying to rebuild at the same time. Um, it's hurts that we don't play them in football every year. Same with Duke, but although who cares about that one for, for football, but um, just in terms of, like, I think the schools have a lot of similarities, even though they're a public school, we're a private, like there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, you, you can kind of see where rivalry will form there. And we, we discussed a decent amount here. So um, I think those would be my three off the top of my head. I, you know, we always talk about the BC and the pits. Like they just don't have a lot there. Like I just never care that much. Yeah. I, I think fully, fully understand those, those reasons. I would say for me, like Duke's tough because I don't honestly like think outside of like men's lacrosse and men's basketball, we really care all that much. And I think that like with men's basketball, there's always going to be a team or, or two that they care about more than us. I think that makes it very hard to like maintain a rivalry to the extent that we would potentially want it. I think BC is the obvious one, but the problem is, like you said, it's the, the quality of play. I think if BC could become a consistent basketball team, I think that actually makes that rivalry uh, far more relevant, even better if they ever decided to join the ACC for lacrosse. I think we already have some, some other great rivalries with them. Um, in terms of, uh, I believe we play them in field hockey uh, every so often, um, and, and those matchups get pretty heated. I know the women's lacrosse team in BC uh, have pretty solid 
uh, rivalry. I know in other sports we do too. I think that that's, that's one that I, I think is better than maybe. They're, uh, our, more, they're our most natural rival for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think if you're looking at the most natural rival, like BC is definitely it. I think there's, I think there's an angle there if they can improve men's basketball, even a respectable um, point. Uh, and then I think the third um, beyond Virginia and BC, I think is either Pitt or, or Louisville. I think Louisville, like you said, is kind of an interesting case. And I think too, like they're, they're in a similar spot to us. Like they obviously had their primary rival in Kentucky, but that's a, that's a school that, that is a rival of proximity and, and of convenience, um, not necessarily of conference affiliation or like, you know, shared postseason um, like battles and things like that. Like for Louisville, we already have that. Um, you can go back to the Big East days and we have um, quite a few um, men's basketball games and important ones at that uh, that we've had against Louisville. Um, you know, obviously, again, a lot depends on what sports they decide to sponsor and things. But like we upset Louisville in women's basketball last year. Um, we face them regularly in uh, women's lacrosse, um, in soccer. Like there is, I think to me, Louisville is the one with the potential and, and I think I think that that's predicated on the men's basketball history, but I think the other sports can kind of pick it up eventually. I think with Pitt, I think we, we we've been doing this for for fifty sixty years, and it hasn't caught. So I, I just I, I don't bank on it doing so at this point. If it was done to happen with Pitt, it would have happened. Louisville is still like it's not a new rivalry. Like when, when did they join the Big East? Oh five. So yeah. like we have a decent amount of history, but like I you know some of my favorite Syracuse games ever are against Louisville in in cross sports. Um, not like the number ones, but like. I feel like we have way more memorable games against Louisville um, in football, basketball, uh, and, you know, a handful of other sports um, in my time than we do against Pitt. And we, we've played Pitt and everything forever. Um, just the Pitt games are always such slods on either side. Even like some, I mean, it's definitely the Tyler Ennis game. And that's like the one um, against Pitt, like that really stands out. And like a couple other decent wins, but like even halftime when we beat Pitt and it's fun, it's like we shouldn't have even been that close. It's just that Pitt drags us into the mud um Louisville like they also play like generally a pretty attractive brand of, of both football and basketball um which helps uh and it, I don't know I always just feel a lot more from those rivalry from those matchups even though even when like the t- game a couple years ago in 2018 the football game where Louisville was awful it was still so much fun to just pa- like drive them into the ground and basically like Petrino basically like if he, he was gonna lose the job anyway but like the team quit on him that night um, I don't know that would have been as fun against Pitt. Like it would have been fun because like we don't have that many of those football games under our belts ever. But I don't think it would have felt as like funny or whatnot. Um, and also like Pitt doesn't have like a Lamar Jackson to like come right before that to make us really want to beat them the following year. So it's uh yeah it's it's definitely like I don't know I don't think it's ever gotten quite uh, enough love even though there's been like really good moments and I think there's a lot to it. Yeah, I agree. I, I think the Louisville one's the most interesting one. And it's actually like outside of this blog, I feel like it's not really talked about as much. Um, but it's one I, I definitely like to see more investment in. And and obviously that just comes with largely SU being more successful. Um, Cause I feel like Louisville's already got that box checked um, in a lot of different sports. Yeah, that's fair. Um, definitely fair. And it also helps with Louisville versus like what you're saying about Duke, where obviously we're never going to be UNC. We're probably, if anything, we're going to fill the Maryland role, which um sounds worse than it probably is uh, no uh, most uh most it was acc like diehards that refer to i know uh, ben swain does refers to us as private school maryland it's i get it <laughs> i mean <laughs> maryland won a national title before us like they had some some moments um 
Louisville, you know, having Kentucky in the SEC, like obviously that's a really intense rivalry, but it kind of exists where it exists. Um, and like in the ACC, I think we're best pro, uh, best poised. I know they have a little thing with Virginia as well, but like it's easier to have like your non-conference rival and your conference rival both coexist um, without having to worry about who's who's number one. Like we all know Kentucky's always going to be number one for them, um, but it still like still feels like a, a big thing to beat your ACC rival versus like for we're never at most will ever be number two for Duke. And even that's kind of tough sledding because of NC state. Um, I know they don't want to acknowledge that, but like, yeah. So I think that's a fair point as well. It just seems like, it seems like we've had enough success against Duke that like they at least cared to a degree and having like the Bayheim K relationship helps as well. Yeah. I mean, I think the big test for that one will be what happens when, uh, when K and Bayheim are done and, and, and can, can, yeah. can that continue? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think for Duke, I mean, obviously, like, you know, you and I are Syracuse fans, but I do think Duke is better situated to succeed at this level after K than I think Syracuse is after Bayheim. That's probably a whole that's probably a whole episode of a podcast or several article series. <laughs> yes. That's, that, that's my feeling. Well, no, I think that's true, but I think that's also like Duke just hit a much higher high. But I also think if Duke fails and this turns into like a post wooden UCLA situation, it's going to look a lot worse than if uh, the person after Bayheim struggles, like it's going to be, there's going to be so much attention paid on that person versus like Syracuse. I think people should, you know, I think the expectations will be a lot lower. Yeah. Yeah. I think people could just, I think nationally, at least people can kind of just shrug it off. And because realistically, like, I don't think anyone, I mean, part of it's just East coast bias stuff, but like nobody nationally cares about UCLA not mattering. Like, People at no, UCLA care and LA cares, but like Under nobody, yeah, Under Armour definitely cares. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's it's you know it is Under Armour's fault that they that that you know they they decided to buy a stock at twenty five dollars that had never reached seventeen dollars a share, um, and 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 now they're wondering why they're not getting the return they wanted. Yeah, that that contract looked bad at the time. So um, while I don't really know. Uh, I don't really know why it's actually funny. I made a comparison um, to, to someone um, Under Armour is trying to pull on UCLA, what we're trying to pull on carrier. <laughs> so like, I kind of yeah. respect it, but it's exactly <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> game respect game. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know that it's going to work in either case, but I can't, I can't make fun of Under Armour and not make fun of Syracuse while Syracuse is doing exactly what they should be doing with the carrier contract. Like they absolutely should be trying to get out of that. So at this, I just to be consistent, Under Armour, I probably should be trying to get out of the UCLA contract, even if it's totally their fault. The one difference is Under Armour made that contract when everyone knew what the going rate for contracts like that was uh, was at the time, and it looked ridiculous. We made the terrier contract before like naming rights were really a thing, so we had the we didn't have any like benefit of the doubt or like benefit of knowing what that was going to be like for going forward. So um, that's the one the one part of that where Syracuse gets a little bit. Uh, a little bit of a buy, uh, bailout there. I, I definitely agree. I think we get at least a mild pass uh, on that front. Uh, Dan, before we uh, continue into our second part of this podcast, uh, what have you been drinking lately? So since I missed a week, I've actually had a lot to uh, catch up on, and I've also been in multiple places. Um, so going back to when I was in Jersey, uh, I had been drinking stuff from Heavy Reel in Seaside Heights. I'm still really impressed with them. I had a, a Ryan's beer, I think, since last week spoke. 
which was an IPA from them, which was really, really good. Um, again, like everything there is really good, and they're such a tiny brewery. I'm hoping they uh, continue to do well. Um, and then back up at Connecticut, uh, I had some more stuff from Half Full. Um, I had their Blood Orange Supernova, which is their session uh, sour. I actually liked it more than the mango, and I generally like mango more than Blood Orange as a flavor. So that was good. They also have a nice uh, like neighborhood series for my hometown where they're doing uh, uh, Northeast IPAs for like all the different neighborhoods. I think the, the Glenbrook Double is, is the best of those that I've had so far. And then this weekend here in the city, I stopped at a, a really like a brand new open during this quarantine craft beer store that opened up like less than a mile from us. It has a, a great selection. Um, I got some sour mango strawberry from Edmund's Oast. Um, not one of the Edmund's Oasts I had down in South Carolina when I was there, um, but really, really good, uh, delicious blend of flavors. I had a Yacht Jams Volume 5 from Brick's, uh, Brick City Brewing, which is over in New Jersey um a really nice uh like lactose ipa super drinkable uh really interesting flavor um and uh, i got a growler of uh the pocket wrench uh session ipa from industrial arts which is delicious Uh, everything from industrial arts is good and then right now i'm drinking uh, a frankie uh fruit ale from zero gravity up in vermont um which is quite good very nice not a bad haul for you um i have been drinking a lot of the same stuff um, finished off a couple of four packs over the weekend at a Chapman crafted from, uh, down in orange County, had their, uh, the rest of the welcome to Citra, uh, West coast IPA from them. So finished off a four pack of, uh, Highland park world champ. They're a double IPA, um, that I had mentioned last week. Um, and also drank, uh, from cellar maker up in San Francisco, had their, uh, Syrah, uh, farmhouse ale. Uh, that was really good. It was, um, Condition Oaky Wild Ale on Whole Cluster Syrah Grapes from Los Olivos, California. Uh, it's up in the NorCal area. Um, and yeah, I thought it was good. It was, um, I had another Cellar Maker Sour recently that I thought was better, but this one was still like, I felt like pretty mild. It wasn't getting that like heartburn inducing kind of, kind of clawing sour taste. So I, uh, I enjoyed it. Good stuff. Uh, I will try to, I mean, I'll definitely pick up more stuff over, over the fourth. So probably more back to the Jersey stuff, which is good. Uh, getting a nice, nice variety from around the Northeast now, since I'm bouncing back and forth between States all the time. Very nice. Yeah. I've, uh, I've got, uh, some more Highland park stuff being delivered tomorrow. So it's just now at this point, the fact that, that my favorite brewery in LA delivers down here, I can't really quit that. So now I just keep going back to it. Yeah, once I'm back in the city, like pretty much full time, I'm gonna be hitting up that store so often. Like we have some good beer bars, but like going and getting like growlers filled and stuff. Like then you have so much of one beer that you're like dedicated to. These guys are doing like you know build your own four packs, and they have like great like a really great can selection and a bunch of taps. So um, yes, should have plenty of uh, plenty of selection to choose from, and it's it's an easy walk from my apartment. So it's very exciting to have them. Uh, up in business so that's like really one of the things my neighborhood was missing was a, a good legit craft beer store that wasn't like a grocery so very nice. exciting well very glad to hear it um so now we go from craft beer to uh i guess the the mixed six pack of uh of college football conferences uh the american athletic conference uh now with less uconn yeah i was trying to think of what like mediocre uh, beer uconn would be that there's no uh, longer being sold. I feel like UConn being New England, they're like a, they're like a Narragansett. Yeah, that's I I I can think one of those. Maybe a maybe like a lesser Blue Point uh, option, like 
but like, like an old toasted just yeah, like, in the back of the fridge for a while and everyone's like, like oh yeah you're here like instead of getting bought by AD InBev though <laughs> they got bought by AD InBev and then uh the, the, yeah actually they end up being like ballast point where they, they were bought for a large sum of money and then spun off for a very small amount of money <laughs> that comparing UConn football to ballast point is uh, such an awful comparison for ballast point I know I know I, 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 yeah, I will give them, I mean, yeah, if we're including the basketball um, success, I guess you can. Stolpen didn't get, uh, Stolpen's made more than one Fiesta Bowl, I think. <laughs> and they didn't lose by 21 and then lose their head coach the next day because he couldn't even uh, stay, stay at, uh, you know, in Connecticut for an extra hour. Yeah. Habanero Stolpen, he played nobody, Paul. <laughs> Although he is back. Uh, so I don't know how to take this, this metaphor any farther. <laughs> I think, we, I think we've, we've taken it as far as it'll go. Um, so yeah, American Athletic Conference football no longer has divisions. You'll just have 11 teams playing one another in a weird schedule that doesn't involve all of them facing each other because you can't do that with 12 games. Um, Dan, I think UCF is once again, probably the best team in this conference. They're definitely the most talented. I think they've been the most talented team in the conference, uh, for several years now. Uh, but they still can't seem to like I think firmly established themselves as like head and shoulders above people because, you know, Memphis has been really good um, in recent seasons. You've seen Cincinnati turn into um, kind of the capable power we thought they were, um, you know, through I think the latter part of the like Big East days. Um, and then there's still like, you know, SMU finds ways to, to, to punch above um, their weight at times in general, like this is, this remains a fun conference. And I think not having the body bag game that was UConn um, could actually make it a more fun league now that we don't have to, you know, water down the product. Yeah. I think the most fun thing about this conference is that like you legitimately have three upper tier teams and that can expand if Houston uh, bounces back in a couple of years, or if, you know, you get a, a rising USF or a rising um, SMU, like there are, you could have like a really pretty large top tier, um, but also these teams are all different. Like UCF is obviously the machine right now. I think there's still enough questions about Heupel um, maintaining through the long term. Obviously, it's done well so far. Um, but uh, I guess if you look at the staff roster in Nebraska, like maybe it's just you know UCF has more going for it um, just by itself. Uh, but you know, not taking anything away from Heupel. Uh, Memphis obviously has like a very they're you know obviously they're both high offense teams, so they look very different. Um, they have their own kind of like continuity questions now with Ryan Silverfield. Um, although they made that move so quickly that I think they're pretty confident in it. And then Cincinnati is like the defensive stalwart. Um, and Luke Fickle uh, just found like basically the perfect job for him at this level. Um, so it's cool to have like those three uh, pretty definitive schools. And like, I could see any of them winning it this year. Um, UCF should be the favorite. I think Um They'll have a, a really interesting uh, week one game uh, against UNC on that Friday night. And I'm really excited that's on Friday, which I didn't realize until I was looking into this. Because, like, that's low-key, like, one of the most interesting games, I think, of week one. Um, I'm also just fascinated to see who starts a quarterback for them. Because Dylan Gabriel versus Mackenzie Milton is, like, one of the most interesting quarterback battles, considering everything that's happened uh, at that position for them over the last two years. Yeah, I mean, I think Milton could be the, like, odds-on favorite. But, yeah, it's a... Uh... I, I think UCF largely is, is going to go as their quarterback position goes. I think, you know, that, that offense, that entire team is just kind of built around um, speed and around production on that end. Like obviously they've had solid defenses too in that, uh, in, in this stretch, but 
yeah, for, for me, I think a lot of it's going to come down to to the offensive end. I think too, like not to short sell like the other schools. Like I know you mentioned SMU, obviously our beloved Tulane Green Wave, um, are, are are a team that absolutely like could challenge for uh, depending on how you know things break, could challenge for um, you know a, a berth in the AAC championship game depending on if they even have one. Uh, I feel like, you know, USF hitting kind of reset button with Jeff Scott. I think that was actually a really smart and good hire. Um, it's it, it's amazing to me how, like, the Charlie Strong marriage didn't work, work out um, here. And, like, not just didn't work out, but I think, like, really just, like, tripped and fell in, 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 in ways that I don't think you, know, you or me or most other people that just, like, even casually follow, like, national college football, like, thought could happen. But... Yeah, they hit reset. I think Jeff Scott uh, from Clemson uh, is, is a pretty solid hire. I think he's someone that obviously takes over, which should be one of the more desirable jobs um, in the G5. And, you know, that is a, a Florida job with, with obvious potential. I, I think their ceiling is, is maybe slightly lower than UCF's. But even then, like, I, I think it's negligible. I think if you put USF um, up against, you know, your Memphis and Cincinnati and schools like that, like, that's still a pretty high ceiling. Uh, for them, and I don't think USF's going to compete this year, but I, I think they're in a pretty good spot. Um, I think you're still going to have like some quote unquote dregs of this conference. I think Tulsa's kind of struggled of late. Um, obviously, ECU has just not been able to get its footing since moving up um, in the world. I'm also curious to see how Rod Carey um, is able to kind of figure out Temple um, in, in year two. I, uh, I think, you know, last year he just, he had it and he didn't, there was never really like a, I never felt like I was fully on board with Temple on what they were doing. So I'm curious to see what he can kind of do in year two now. The head coaches, um, honestly, is like, it's one of the most fascinating groups of coaches, I think, in all of college football, because you have these really interesting segments of people. Obviously, I think if Heupel um, continues to like build on what uh, Frost did, he'll get a big job. He's young. Silverfield, who knows? He's very young. Um then you have like the the Neomatololo, who obviously has looked into other jobs. Uh, he almost at Arizona a couple of years ago. He's been floated from for I think Wazoo, um, a couple other things here and there. But like you never know who's going to take the shot. Did it with Willie Fritz for basically the same reasons. Um, Holgerson, like you assume Holgerson is uh, is going to try to get back into the the P five, but he could also um, him and Bo and and. Uh, Sonny Dykes, honestly, like they might just get really comfortable where they are. I think Dykes is more likely to just be a lifer at SMU because it really hasn't worked out super well for him uh, at the next level. Um, and then, uh, honestly, like the most in- interesting one, I think, is Luke Fickle, who has gotten a lot of uh, P5 um, attention, West Virginia, Michigan State, um, and is pretty h- much held off. Um, I don't know if like a perfect job isn't open for him because like Ohio State's pretty much locked away for for probably like the foreseeable future because Ryan Day is young and did an incredible job this past year. Um, it's hard to find like a better coach suited for his program than Luke Fickle. He obviously has like uh, ambitions to go higher than that, but like you almost wonder where that even is. Um, and like what makes sense for him to leave Cincinnati because there are so few of those jobs that are like a major, major step up that are like bigger than Michigan state or West Virginia that like aren't going to be the, aren't going to pose a threat of him, like maybe derailing things. It's like we saw with Charlie Strong, obviously he did a great job at Louisville. He probably could have stayed at Louisville and maybe he would have flamed out or 
you know, after Teddy Bridgewater left or, or he would have just kept on rolling there, but he went to Texas and now he's like damaged goods, um, which, and SMU like seemed like it could have been a really good springboard for him. And like you said, it just didn't work out, even though on paper, I think if you probably go back to the episode after he was hired, I'm sure we talked about it. And I'm sure we said, this makes a lot of sense. He'll probably do really well at, at a USF. And uh, no, just, it's just really fascinating. Like, I think there's no coach on this list um, who's just in a really obvious, like, okay, this is the job he just took. And then he'll take the next step. Like there could be guys like that. I think Heupel's the most obvious one, although UCF's a tough job just to leave. So yeah, I think just one of the most interesting like coaching groups in all of college football, maybe the most interesting because the AAC is like such a potential springboard up, but like a lot of these situations are really good. And I kind of feel like we're going to start seeing coaches more reticent to leave, especially if like a Houston or a USF is going to open up the, the pocketbooks and say like, Hey, you're not going to, you know, maybe you don't have the pass to the national championship, but we'll at least pay you like, like mid power five money. And like, you'll just be here forever. And as long as you keep on winning. So yeah, I wonder, I, I and then throw on all the other stuff that we talked about a couple of weeks ago of like teams are, it's going to be harder to move coaches. I think for a couple of years now, I, I really wonder what, what this, uh, how this ends up looking a couple of years down the road. Yeah. I mean, like you said, I think the, the economic stuff is such a big part of this. The fact that all of these, you know, like, like the AAC is, is better off than the mountain West for numerous reasons. But one of the bigger ones is that, you know, they're in major media markets. They're in talent hotbeds. Like a lot of mountain West programs are just not in places loaded with, you know, FBS talent. And, and the fact that, you know, at the AAC level, you know, you, you, you can make a lot of inroads in a lot of talent hotbeds and set yourself up well to take that next step once you're there and you don't have to necessarily start from scratch. Like if you succeed at Wyoming and not that Craig Bowles like looking to go anywhere, but you succeed at Wyoming, like what's your, what will, you know, what, what's your next step once you leave? Like, even if you go to one of the California schools or, or you know, Utah, whatever, you still have to build new inroads into recruiting. I feel like in most of the AAC schools, that's not the case. Um, I, I think it is in a really interesting group. Like you said, I think they're a springboard. I think there's, I think that's going to be the case for as long as there's kind of the separation between the P5 and, and, and the other five conferences is that AAC is probably going to be at the top of the pecking order, barring some sort of realignment related calamity uh, for them. Uh, Dan, do you think that, that, that Holgo can go probably under eight and four again and, and keep his job at Houston though? Yeah, I do. Um, a, because of the economics. Uh, I think he has a pretty big deal for uh, a, a G5. Also, I think last year was just so transparent um, in terms of – he basically tanked, which doesn't make any real sense for college football. But um, he, like – just the way he managed his roster was super interesting. Obviously, Derek King and a couple other guys walked away. He said that's fine. He just did, like, a super unprecedented thing. He effectively tanked the season – he played a lot of freshmen, but less than the four games. So he got a lot of guys, a little bit of experience um, without burning red shirts. Um, he found like at least a, a decent quarterback in Clayton Toon. Um, he brought in a ton of FBS transfers, which is a big uh, running theme here. These programs have uh, all just like really loaded up on FBS transfers. And a lot of guys, because of how transfers are working now, it's not even guys who just couldn't cut it at, uh, another at a, a power five event transfers, not FBS. Um, a lot of guys that like maybe could have, you know, gotten to be starters at the power five level and been productive players like their junior season, senior seasons, but they've just, you know, want to ramp things up and get that, uh, that playing time earlier on. Um, so I don't know that he needs to go eight and four this year. I think last year was like pretty clearly a year zero by his own making, even though it didn't seem like that was what it was going to be going in. 
I can't imagine he would have done that if he thought that he was going to have that held against him. Um, so I think this ends up kind of being his like de facto year one. And then probably next year's where you want to really see stuff to solve a lot of like really experienced uh, redshirt sophomores, juniors, I think. Um, but this year could be interesting too. I mean, he has talent on the team. He has a, 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 a what will be a very fascinating Wazoo team early. He has Memphis very early. Um, so they'll be a very interesting one to watch. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Houston has no excuse but to be like a, I think, top, you know, third of this conference every year based on resources, based on nearby talent. Um, obviously, they have money to burn on football and they're willing to do it. Uh, and, and yeah, it, it is weird to see them at anything but like eight and four at minimum. Uh, I mean, I want- what happened there was just like Tom Herman was so good there. And like, obviously, the, the you know, he's done decent at Texas, better than the last couple of guys at Texas. But, um, like Tom Herman, I don't think was a fluke. I think you can do that at Houston pretty consistently. They just made, they have this major apple is their Scott Schaefer hire. Like they didn't want to go through the process. They thought they had a guy who maybe could just keep it rolling. And that's so hard to pull off. It just doesn't work that well all the time. Like a lot of the time. So um, yeah, I, I just think that like the fact that they were able to get Holgo is impressive, but like the major apple white hire just like screamed. We don't feel like going through a process right now. So we're just going to do this. And it worked out about as well as that always goes. Yeah, I, I would agree there. Uh, I do want to circle back um, on the Luke Fickle stuff just before we like talked about the current teams quick and made some predictions. Um, I think Fickle, if I'm being real, is probably looking either waiting for Ryan Day to get the NFL call up or there's a potential. I mean, and, and, and I'm thinking this, that he's waiting for Harbaugh to get canned. And that those are really the only two jobs that could get him. That'd be a wild move. The lifetime Ohio State guy taking over Michigan. And not that he wouldn't do it because it's a great job, but that'd be a wild move. And he would burn a lot of bridges. Um, the Ryan Day thing, like that's the obvious thing because Ryan Day, his stock is super high. Um, I mean, there are already people saying like, maybe he's going to be better than Meyer, which is tough because Urban Meyer, I think is one of the like off, off, off field stuff aside. Um, one of the best coaches in touchable history. Um, he could definitely get NFL looks and that might happen. My question would be if you're Ohio state, obviously Luke Fickle's paid his dues. He's been the nominal head coach of Ohio state before. Um, he has all the recruiting ties. He's killing it at Cincinnati. Would you want to go to a defensive guy when you've had so much success with Meyer, basically bringing his whole culture, you know, again, purely on field culture and offensive mindedness and then porting it over to Ryan day. So, uh, seamlessly and now like at least rolling around the same level if not getting even better with Ryan Day like I would be very hard pressed to say like okay let's bring Luke Fickle back not that he couldn't do a pretty good job but I'd really want to think about rolling just like finding another offensive guy if not developing him in, in program and trying to keep that going because uh, it's it's not easy to to build an offense and once you have someone like a Ryan Day or a Lincoln Riley um, like there's a reason why Urban Meyer and Bob Stoops did what they did um, they, when you have a rare offensive coaching talent, uh, I think it's tough to not just opt for that. And then offense, just like, you know, defenses are great. Offense wins in touchable right now. Um, that's been very clear. Uh, even like the best defensive teams, they, they need a pretty close to elite level offense to win a national championship. So, um, yeah, I don't know that the Ohio state thing is like something you can just wait on. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, if, if they left for the NFL, who does he bring with him? And, and, and how much is Ohio State willing to pay? I feel like Ohio State is willing to pay whatever it costs to, to keep an offensive talent um, on that staff to make sure Fickle's fully supported, if I had to guess. 
oh, they'll pay whatever. That's the other thing. It's like you bring in Fickle and say like, hey, we have this. We've been grooming this quarterbacks coach. He knows exactly what he's doing. And then that can be really attractive because Fickle um, knows exactly how Ohio State's run. He he was coached long, like he had a long uh, term uh, assistant coaching careers under both Trestle and Urban Meyer and was the uh, interim head coach for a year, coached alongside Ryan Day. Like it's hard to think of a guy better suited for it. It's just like, it's tough to go to a defensive guy when offense is basically like turn that program into what it's become. Um, that being said, like he probably should be the first call just on paper. Um, but I, you know, I'd want to know like, Hey, you're going to keep the offense rolling, right? Like you're going to basically just plug in the next possible person who knows exactly how to keep the, the Meyer day thing going. So yeah, it, it's tough. And then, you know, Ryan day may never want to go to the NFL. Like Lincoln Riley has had opportunities. He hasn't gone yet. I, I don't know that he will never do it, but some guys like college football, if you just want to be a college football guy, you're going to get paid as well as almost every NFL coach. So it's not like the, the, the definite thing. It's just like kind of an ego thing. I think more than anything else. Well, yeah. And I think with guys like Ryan day, guys like Lincoln Riley, like younger coaches with a lot of ramp ahead of them in their careers, like they don't really know what this turns into, you know, for all they know, the, the amateur model falls apart or for all they know. I mean, right now, like they're only a couple of years in, they haven't won national championships if the two of them decide that, Hey, I want to win a couple of titles. I want to kind of, you know, unseat Dabo and all that um, and, and kind of reestablish, you know, I mean, yes, Oklahoma and, and Ohio state are two of the biggest names in college football, but um, you know, as you, as a coach, you want to be able to to say that you want a title or two. Like I, I could see that kind of being, you know, part of the long game for them. Yeah. The fact that Riley hasn't tested the waters, like obviously there've been a million rumors about like the Cowboys with him. Um, and obviously that's being put off for the time being since I hired Mike McCarthy, uh, LOL as a Packers fan. Um, yeah. So I, like, it's hard to say never, um, because it feels like most top end cultural coaches at least try it. Um, obviously Meyer didn't, which was interesting because there were plenty of rumors in that direction as well, but, um, it's just no slam dunk. You never really know where these guys heads are at. Um, so obviously for Ryan day, it's really early to call because he's been head coach for literally one season, but, uh, yeah, neither one would surprise me. Um, but Fickle's definitely fascinating because, like, if not that, and, like, obviously Michigan, like, I think you probably take a call. Um, I don't know how how deep those Ohio State uh, roots run. But, um, like, if you're not going if you're not going all the way out for the Michigan State job, which was this past offseason or past, like, you know, a couple months ago, it actually feels like a lot longer ago. Um, like, how many more obvious jobs are there for him? Because Michigan State kind of felt like exactly what a, a Luke Fickle would jump to, and he didn't seem all that interested. So, yeah, who knows? Uh, he could be at Cincinnati for a long time, I think. It'll definitely be interesting. I'm curious to see how that shakes out. Um, Danny's wrapping up here. Um, we didn't necessarily go too in-depth on a lot of these teams, but I think that's expected. Um, <laughs> Who would you say is headed to the uh, the American Athletic Conference Championship game, provided it happens? Um, I'm going to say UCF just because um, they have the continuity. They have a lot of talent. Um, both quarterback options, I think, are good ones. Uh, both have won, have been, like, the the best eye in the league or close to it uh, when they've played, um, as long as, like, they just make – I just don't know if they make it their own choice. If, like, if Milton's clearly not healthy, like, just Gabriel has a job, and Gabriel was, was great last year and should only get better. Um, so I think UCF uh, will will be there. And then I'll go Cincinnati just because I think they have the continuity as well. Their offense has some questions, but their D is like a, you know, a solid like power five level defense. Um, and Fickle just keeps on getting better there. Memphis, I just have so many questions about uh, Ryan Silverfield. They have a lot of talent. Um, and Memphis has just been 
you know, a really steady program for so long now after being nothing before Fuente. Um, but I just have enough questions about Memphis where I think Cincinnati's just the easier, the easier pick. And then like Navy has to replace Malcolm Perry, which is a, a mess. I don't think any of the other teams are like quite on that level. Um, everyone else has much bigger questions. So I'm doing Cincinnati UCF. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely going UCF. I just wanted to, while you were doing that, I was just pulling up the 2020 schedule for Cincinnati and Memphis um, just to see where things were at um, in terms of their conference schedules. Uh, Memphis, uh, they got home against Houston. They got at SMU, UCF, Temple, at Cincinnati, uh, USF, at Navy, at Tulane. Really, Memphis's schedule is about as hard as you could possibly get for the AAC. I feel like that's a murderer's row of, uh, of like the best programs in the league. Uh, which is pretty impressive here that, that they ended up with all of those teams. Losing the divisions Macy's like this league really tough because like there aren't really gimme games here. Um, like ECU should get better from last year. Tulsa, who knows, like maybe they're the bottom, but like Tulsa's a tough bottom of the conference um, just because they have that, that, you know, uh, bear raid style. Um, I don't think they're very good. And like Phil Montgomery probably at the end of his rope here um but even them like they only lost a bunch of games last year because they couldn't kick at all <laughs> which is a fun problem to have uh, that costs you multiple games but like usf's gonna be talented Tulane is really tricky as we know and we love temples really tough on d so like there just aren't like there's really no game where you just pen- pencil it in um especially if you see you in tulsa take step forwards steps forward um there's just like the, the this league is like as uh heavy in the middle i think as it gets without UConn being there. No, I agree. And I think like looking at Cincinnati's schedule now too, I mean, again, like we said, no, no, nothing easy, but USF at Tulsa, at SMU, Memphis, Houston, ECU, UCF at Temple, at UCF at Temple, like Cincinnati closes really tough. I think with two, with two difficult games on the road. Uh, however, I do think that Cincinnati getting ECU and Tulsa probably puts them in a little bit better spot than Memphis uh, in terms of just wins and losses. Cause that's all it's going to take. Um, you know, to get to the championship game this time around. Yeah, it's also just like, it's a lot to ask of Memphis to not have hiccups. And like, you kind of have to avoid hiccups at all. Um, you can maybe suffer one or two losses uh, to death the championship game because like, it's going to be so competitive at the top. Yeah, I, I, I just don't know if they can do it. Uh, the last thing before we get to uh, who we're going to pick to win the uh, league, um, how many wins for Tulane this year? Uh, let me pull up the schedule quick. Tulane, it's it's. Uh, They're at Northwestern and at Mississippi State. Really tough schedule. Uh, I looked at this earlier. At Northwestern, at Miss State, at Houston, at UCF. Um, yeah. let's see. Even the easy games are on the road at at ECU at Tulsa. Yeah, and like, I think they're going to look a lot like every. It's funny. All these Willie Fritz teams look different every year. Um, they do return some some players. They like every other school here have like a good amount of Power Five transfers um let's see i mean i could see them beating at like northwestern on the road because northwestern i feel like has this this loss every year <laughs> against one of these teams <laughs> uh mississippi state is tough to know what they're gonna be uh, i mississippi state might be bad this year um obviously like we know what mike leach early on looks like it's not usually pretty and also like the mississippi state roster is not really designed for leach at all his best player is his running back who uh you know because the state of mississippi came to its senses will be playing this year um but uh, yeah, it's the schedule's tough. Um, they'll beat ECU. I, I feel pretty confident about that. Even like Army is not like a gimme game at home. At Tulsa, Southeastern Louisiana, 
Um, I'm going to say they're going to pick off one of these Power 5 teams um, just because they both have big question marks. They'll beat Southeastern Louisiana. Um, I'll say that I'll, I'll think the Houston game, the ECU game, and then I think it's really going to come down to if they, can, if they can split Army and Tulsa, I think they get I think they get to six. I think six is the number. I think I'm between five and six. Uh, I'll go optimist and say six. I think it's gonna be tough to get over that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think this is like if you just change other bowls in your two lane, like you're in really good shape, especially because there's a lot of turnover from last year. Yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. I think I think if Tulane can turn themselves into a consistent bowl team, uh, that's that's fair enough as like part one. And then once you do that for you know several years in a row, uh, then you start talking about you know more. But you also don't schedule yourself to the ground um, as, as as the schedule kind of looks like. Yeah, it's it's it, you can't with with the AAC looking at what it looks like now. I don't think you can schedule your schedule two power fives. Like it's just on not, the road, no less. Road. And, and and then invite Army down to New Orleans. Yeah, like this is a really really difficult schedule. There's really only like one obvious win here. Um, there's a bunch of other possible wins, as we said. Like you know, we think they'll win five or six, but like the only like definite win here is Southeastern Louisiana, and that's a tough place to be. We've seen these schedules with Syracuse all the time. We're like, oh yeah, these are there's seven wins on the schedule, but there's also like three. <laughs> uh, all right, last question. Uh, who wins between UCF and uh, Cincinnati? Since we're both putting them in the championship game. Um, I'm going to be boring and say US, UCF. Their defense is also really good. Um, maybe since he's a little better, but UCF's is right there. And UCF just has a much more proven offense at quarterback as well. Took the words right out of my mouth. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm going to pick UCF as well. I think UCF's one of the handful of contenders for the uh, G5's uh, you know, near six spot. If UCF wins the conference again and wins 10 or 11 games, even if they don't get the, the, the near six, I think then, like, you know, Hypo starts hitting some big looks and – uh, depending on what the coaching carousel looks like this year. And then, like, what does UCF do? They've made, uh, you know, two really excellent hires in a row now. Um, it's tough to repeat that, but it's also a very attractive job. So I think that'll be uh, as it, as I mean, Hypo came out of nowhere um, when he was hired away from Mizzou. Yeah. Uh, so the fact that that's worked out super well uh, is, is a good sign for them. They have a process. They're really, a really well-run athletic department. Um, but it's not hard to make a bad hire in college even if it looks like a good hire. So that'll be really interesting. Agreed. Agreed. Well, uh, I think that's it for us this week. Uh, Dan, uh, thank you as always for joining. Much appreciated. Yes. Glad to be back. Thank you for Kevin for filling in for me last week, uh, last minute. Um, and yeah, hopefully everyone enjoys uh, the 4th of July this weekend, but most importantly, stay safe, please. Please. If you want football, please. Yeah, indeed. Just stay safe on multiple levels. Uh, you know, try to avoid large crowds, wear a mask, don't shoot your hand off with fireworks. Um, keep 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 dogs and children in mind when shooting off fireworks, please. As opposed to the city, New York City, which on top of having our random fireworks all over the place everywhere, which I'm sure everyone's read about, um, Macy's this year, instead of having their one fireworks show, has decided they're going to have uh, six nights of guerrilla fireworks all over the city on top of the fireworks that are already happening all over the city. Mm-hmm. Um, because everything in 2020 is the stupidest aggressively done don't do it guys giant hailstorm today that's horrifying (laughs) it's the dumbest year get us out of it all right everyone well on that note enjoy the end of days Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Trend Unions and Absolute Podcast. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Megaphone, on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Overcast, wherever you might listen to podcasts, and go orange. Go orange. <laughs>